Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another issue of our NCAS Regulatory Brief. Today, we're going to discuss the most important and relevant topics affecting the industry during the month of April. I am Stephanie Lyon, the Vice President of Compliance at InContracts, and joining me today, we have two of our fantastic experts, Shelby Montgomery and Katie Furl. We're going to start with issues affecting everyone broadly, then we're going to get a little bit more narrow into depository institutions, banks, credit unions, of course, and then our mortgage companies. Starting us out today, we have the CFPB. They have not had a quiet month during April. They've been doing everything from enforcements to lawsuits to public statement, guidance, notices. They've been doing it all. They've definitely had a very busy spring. So one of the more important items that we wanted to discuss is repeat offenders. What are repeat offenders under the CFPB's lens? These are institutions that have already been told once or twice that what they're doing, the activities they're engaging in could be unfair, deceptive, or simply violating consumer protection laws and regulations. In our case study today, we have TransUnion. TransUnion was asked to pay a $17 million penalty for unfair and deceptive practices involving credit reporting advertisements. What was TransUnion doing? They were marketing a $1 or free credit report to their consumers, but ultimately what they were really doing is they were enrolling these consumers to a monthly subscription program for credit monitoring. The consumer was unaware all throughout the process of enrolling up until the very end where there was a tiny little disclosure that would tell the consumer they were actually providing their credit card for this type of service. After the fact, the TransUnion was making it very difficult for the consumer to cancel the subscription. And of course, that's how the consumer would start incurring fees. This seemed to be a very profitable service or system for TransUnion. But ultimately, again, because it was deceptive, CFPB asked them to stop. We're talking about repeat offenders. So did they stop? Not likely. In 2019 and 2020, the CFPB reminded TransUnion that this is something they are still doing and they should stop. And nonetheless, they persisted. And now we're in 2022, and now we have a new lawsuit headed by the CFPB against TransUnion for specifically these types of activities again. What's really significant about the TransUnion activity is The lawsuit is not just going after TransUnion and subsidiaries, but it's also going after the former president of one of the TransUnion subsidiaries, and that is pretty significant when you start going after individuals. So for repeat offenders, it's clear to us the CFPB is really strapping down and saying, we need to make sure that there is no ROI for noncompliance when it comes to repeat offenders, especially those large participants that have really deep pockets and they feel like a penalty of $17 million doesn't really represent a really big penalty or a pain for some of these participants. So what the CFPB is trying to do now is they're going to try to employ additional tools 
They're going to try to partner with other agencies like the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, the OCC, depending on who the regulator is that affects the institution. And they're going to see there's other tools available that would actually bring the attention of the industry. A tool out there that has already brought the attention of players that are repeat offenders like Wells Fargo, Citibank is telling these banks that they're going to have a cap on how much they can grow or perhaps not allowing them to provide the product or service anymore. Another one that has worked in the past is telling the institution that they're going to be reviewing who is going to sit on the board from now on and who the executive leadership is going to be comprised of. Those types of tools actually bring the attention to the institutions and that's what the CFPB is hoping to do. We're gonna move on and stay with the CFPB, stay on credit reporting, but switch to something a little bit different. What we're looking at now is a proposed rule by the CFPB that is meant to assist victims of human trafficking and sexual trafficking. And the, the problem here, what we see here, unfortunately, is a lot of times these victims face not just the trafficking aspect of the crime, but financial abuse by the perpetrators. And then the way that we see it is they rack up debt on behalf of the, the victim. They make it very difficult for them to get a different job because they have ruined their credit scores. They have racked up debt. They haven't repaid that debt. So if the victim ever escapes the trafficking circle, they have a very difficult time reestablishing their lives. They have a very difficult time finding a job, employment, apartments, getting access to services like utilities, getting access to a bank account. So the CFPB is proposing this rule where credit reporting agencies would not be allowed to provide negative reports regarding the types of crime in the time period in which the time of the crime occurred for these victims. So the proposed rule is pretty straightforward because it looks very similar to the way credit reporting errors work today. Where there is a victim, they let the credit reporting agency that they were a victim of the crime. The credit reporting agency then provides them a notice that they've received this specific request to suppress information. They let them know the determination within a few business days, and ultimately we're good to go. Where there's a lot of problems in this proposed rule is what kind of documentation is a victim of trafficking meant to have and to be able to provide to the credit reporting agency? And that's where it's extremely important that our industry bands together and decides and knows that they have worked with these victims, what kind of documentation we should expect them to be able to provide. So that is on credit reporting and the CFPB. We're going to move on to another thing that the CFPB is doing. They're trying to expand their supervisory powers, utilizing a dormant clause that allows them to also supervise not just banks that are over $10 billion in assets and credit unions and mortgage lenders and payday lenders and servicers, but now they're looking at non-banks that could pose any risk to consumers. That's a pretty wide net that they're trying to cast. Why are they doing that today? Fintechs. Those are the types of non-banks that are generally, if not already defined as mortgage companies or people engaging in large participation for servicing or payday lending or debt collection. The CFPB thinks they are causing consumer harm or are likely to cause consumer harm. So the way they're going to determine if your institution that is a non-bank should be supervised is they're going to rely on complaints, consumer complaints. They're going to rely on whistleblowers. 
They're going to rely with their partnerships with federal and state agencies to determine if they should be going after someone. Let me tell you something. When the CFPB gives you a heads up that they're going to be utilizing this dormant authority, it's because they already have their eyes on someone. They already know probably and most likely a couple of players out there that they would like to go after, and they're just giving them heads up. The way this is going to work out for these non-banks is they will get a notice from the CFPB letting them know that the CFPB is going to exercise the supervision and examination power over them, giving them an opportunity to respond and ultimately go through that examination. Today, the CFPB already does that for some non-banks, but it is kept very confidential. We don't know what happens, what kind of examination issues come out of these problems or these types of statements. We don't know what happens behind these closed doors. What the CFPB is hoping to provide is a little bit more transparency, which is always appreciated. And the type of transparency they're going to give us is after determining during an exam or supervision activity that a non-bank engage in an activity that others should know about because it serves the greater good for consumers to know about it, or it was going to set some kind of precedent, they will make it public. So that is a variance or a change from what we know they've been doing during their supervision of non-banks before. All of those changes are being proposed through a procedural rule going on right now. So it's your opportunity to comment, but we will keep you informed when this is finalized because ultimately this is going to have a greater impact on knowing and understanding what fintechs are doing and what is permissible versus impermissible. And hopefully putting banks, fintechs, mortgage companies all on the same type of supervision and expectations. We're going to go ahead and move on to a different regulator, different problems, same flavors. And we're going to talk about discriminatory home lending practices. Shelby's going to tell us what's going on on that front. Yes, thanks, Stephanie. So we all know that we have fair lending laws that are designed to protect borrowers from mortgage discrimination. This month's news shows us that even the biggest of banks may not be living up to our expectations. First, we've got Wells Fargo being sued over discriminatory home lending practices. This is a Los Angeles-based law firm. They're suing both Wells Fargo Bank and Wells Fargo Home Mortgage, and they're claiming discrimination against Black applicants for home mortgage refinances through the bank's home mortgage lender service. Now, this suit joins others that were filed earlier this year in February. The complaint actually cites a Bloomberg report that in 2020, Wells Fargo approved just 47% of Black refinance applicants versus 72% of white applicants. And the report also noted that Wells Fargo in particular lags behind other major lenders in approval rates for minority applicants. So this is one we'll keep following for you and we'll update you as, as the lawsuit continues. We've also got Bank of America in the mix this month. They recently settled a fair housing discrimination claim entering into an agreement with a mortgage applicant who was allegedly told that their loan could not be approved until one family member returned to work following maternity leave, which is not often something we think about maybe in the discrimination world, but it is in fact discrimination. So Bank of America has denied having discriminated against the applicant. They did agree to settle the claims with HUD, um, but 
they just paid a $15,000 penalty. So for someone like Bank of America, probably not a large sum of money there, but the agreement did not end up being a finding by HUD that there was a violation of the Fair Housing Act. But while agencies like HUD are starting to report seeing record numbers of complaints alleging housing discrimination, it's probably a good time for you to review your policies, review your procedures, provide a little additional training and keep discrimination um, at the, the top of everyone's mind. Thank you, Shelby. And the lawsuit against Wells Fargo definitely gives me a little bit of reminder from the Philadelphia city that pursued Wells Fargo for similar discrimination. So it's interesting that this persists and it goes back to our conversation about repeat offenders, right? We're going to go ahead and move on to changes in housing and mortgage lending. And Katie has all the information on those changes. Yes, thank you, Stephanie. Happy spring, everyone. HUD did recently announce this month that the Federal Housing Authority, or as we know it, FHA, has added a 40-year loan modification option for borrowers who are still, still experiencing hardship from COVID-19. Previously, these modifications were limited to 30 years. And just a few weeks before that announcement, the agency also issued a proposed rule to allow for mortgagees to offer a standalone 40-year option for loan modifications, regardless of COVID, just really under any circumstances that warrant that option. Both of these actions are aimed at providing payment relief, preventing redefault, and ultimately to allow borrowers to remain in their homes. The permanent change also aligns with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the USDA and NCUA, all of who already support loan modifications up to a 40-year term. FHA reports that from January 2021 through February 2022, FHA servicers have completed more than 1 million COVID-19 loss mitigation or other FHA loss mitigation home retention actions. And the agency feels extending the term on loan modifications is both a win-win for servicers and borrowers. Lengthening a loan term obviously results in lower payments and fosters consumer spending relief, but that does come with a payoff, such as a significant increase in total interest payment, as well as a very slow build in equity in one's home. The FHA, however, feels the benefits of their decision and their proposal this month outweigh those negatives. What's most interesting to me about the actions this month is that the 40-year mortgage modification program could serve as a testing ground for the product's popularity overall in the market. The FHA has indicated that the average life of a 30-year FHA-insured mortgage is approximately only seven years. So on average, most borrowers do not remain in a mortgage loan for its entire duration. Perhaps this is an indicator that if given the option, to have lower monthly payments, a borrower may go for a longer term when choosing a mortgage product because they are not as concerned with total interest payback or build of equity. Ultimately, of course, a 40-year mortgage offering will depend on the attractiveness of the products of the product to investors, but it does make you think about the market in general. We're experiencing rising home prices and subsequent higher mortgage loan amounts and let's not forget this year's maximum conforming loan limit increase being nearly $100,000, which is the largest year-over-year -year jump in recent history. 
And just as a reminder, the 2022 limit is $647,200 in most areas of the country and $970,800 in high cost markets. Um, but getting back to this month's actions, as far as timelines, mortgage servicers may begin implementing the new COVID-19 related 40-year loan modification immediately, but you must begin offering the solution to eligible borrowers within 90 calendar days of their announcement, which is July 17th. As for the proposed rule, the public comment period closes May 31st. And when or if finalized, the rule will give FHA the ability to add a permanent 40-year term to its loss mitigation options. Moving right along to the Veteran Affairs, the VA proposes to rank VA mortgage servicers by tier in a proposed rule this month. And to give you some historical background on this one, in 2008, VA published a final rule commonly known as the Valeri Rule, which initiated modernization to VA servicing policies and systems. In that 2008 rule, VA temporarily established procedures for the tiered ranking system, or it's known as the TRS, which is broken down into four tiers and incentivizes VA mortgage servicers who meet VA criteria and successfully exercise loss mitigation and foreclosure avoidance efforts. However, for the last 14 years, all servicers, because the tiered system hasn't been finalized, have been presumed to fall in the tier two category and incentives have been paid accordingly. By finally moving forward with implementing the TRS, VA intends to further encourage its servicers to provide the best level of default resolution and foreclosure avoidance efforts to its borrowers. Now the incentive amounts are updated periodically and are included in a table found in the Code of Federal Regulations in part 36 but just for some monetary perspective, currently a servicer is incentivized $500 for a loan modification under the, the, the default tier two category, which if they were in a tier one category, they would be paid $700. Now this is for each successful loan mitigation option. So there is some pretty significant incentive opportunity here once the system is finalized and implemented. And let's just hope that that's done uh, sooner than 14 years, right? So um, the proposed rule does outline uh, 10 specific questions in which it would like feedback, such as should VA consider a servicer's volume of VA loans in developing the TRS? And should VA expand the scope of the TRS to include consideration of factors beyond a servicer's performance in the areas of default resolution and foreclosure avoidance? Another one that I found very interesting was the impact it potentially could have on consumers. And the question specifically is, would smaller incentive payments due to a lower tier ranking result in any cost to borrowers? Once the VA's TRS is effective, they, the agency would use it to calculate a quarterly performance score for each servicer based on servicing data from their prior quarter. Comments on this one are due by June 21st. 2022. So if you are an originator of VA guaranteed mortgage loans, please check it out and answer those questions because there are some incentives on the table. Thank you, Katie. That is a lot of changes on the horizon. So I appreciate you breaking them down for us. We're going to go ahead and move on to issues affecting banks. And we're going to start with 
digital currency, virtual currency, cryptocurrency. That is all that is on the regulator's mind today for banks. And I'm, of course, talking about the FDIC. They issued a letter to financial institutions. They are requesting financial institutions that are currently engaging in crypto activities to submit a letter to the FDIC notifying them that they are engaging in these activities. If your bank is thinking of engaging in the activities at some point, they're also requesting a notification promptly, which is not defined. <laughs> so we have to just guess what promptly means at this point. But you are to notify the FDIC. This is very similar to the actions taken by the OCC, in which they're also requesting OCC supervised banks to make that uh, notification to that regulator. So what is to be included in this notification to the FDIC? Well, you should think about the specific activity that you're undertaking, and they want you to view the activity from their lens. The FDIC is currently concerned uh, by cryptocurrency in a couple of different ways. The first one is financial stability. As we know, cryptocurrency is very volatile. It can be up, it can be down, it can go exponentially what it's worth, it can go out of business in a day. So they are concerned that the number of financial institutions that may enter this space with the fire sales that we have experienced when cryptocurrency goes down, as well as the potential losses could represent a big financial impact to our industry. So they want to look at that from that perspective. The second perspective is from safety and soundness. Of course, safety and soundness is meant to protect the deposit insurance fund, the FDIC fund. And they want to make sure that there are no massive losses to that share insurance fund. And of course, cryptocurrency is not a deposit product. It's not something that is already protected by deposit insurance. But should your institution invest very heavily there and face massive operational losses, maybe credit risk, market risk, volatility risk, you could be exposing yourself to fail potentially creating then a loss of the share insurance fund or the deposit insurance fund. So the FDIC wants to make sure you're thinking about it from that safety and soundness perspective. And included in that perspective is also, can you actually understand and verify the ownership of funds, because one of the biggest concerns around cryptocurrency is it may originate from illegal sources or it may be utilized for illegal purposes because it's very difficult to ascertain the true ownership of these funds. And that is part of that safety and soundness consideration. The third consideration of the FDIC is one we all know too well here on this call. If you're a compliance officer, they want you to consider consumer reputation, consumer protection issues that you could face. Our customers don't always understand that cryptocurrency, even if it's provided by a bank or it's going through the institution, is not protected to the degree as their deposits are. They're used to, if there's fraud, they can call the bank. The bank will make it right for them. They're used to, if there's a major loss, the bank will help protect me. That's not the case with virtual currency. That's not the case with digital assets. So that's something that consumers don't truly yet understand, especially if now we have a lot of banks engaging in this type of activity. So that's why the FDIC decided to issue this letter. They want to see the considerations from these three areas. They want to understand exactly the types of activities that your bank is thinking about engaging in or already engaging or offering. And one of the important caveats of this letter is 
They're not telling you that it's permissible for you to engage in any kind of cryptocurrency activity. This is a one-way notification in which you tell them what you're thinking. They're not necessarily going to tell you if they like it, don't like it, if they think it's appropriate, if they think it's legal. That's not what they're going to do for you. So think about this as a very much one-way to the regulator direction here. The other thing I want you to think about, this letter, it truly represents and mimics a mini cryptocurrency examination. That's what I'm going to dub this notification. This is your mini cryptocurrency examination because they're going to take a look at the sufficiency of the documentation, the risk considerations of the activities you're trying to undertake. So you have to take this very seriously if you don't want the FDIC asking for additional documentation, asking additional questions, which this letter tells us they may if they find the letter to be insufficient. So that is what's going on on the federal front, but we also have developments on the state front. Isn't that right, Shelby? We do. So earlier this month, Virginia, of all places, enacted House Bill 263, becoming the first state in the country to permit state chartered banks to provide customers with virtual currency custody services. And listen to this language. So long as the bank has adequate protocols in place, effectively manage risk and comply with applicable laws. So let's break this bill down a little bit more. Um, it explains that Virginia banks can offer this service either in a fiduciary or a non-fiduciary capacity. What does that mean? Well, if you're acting in a fiduciary capacity, the bank will require customers to transfer their virtual currencies to the control of the bank. They're going to create new private keys that will be held by the bank um, and then the bank has the authority to manage the virtual currency assets like it would any other type of asset held by the bank. Now, as a non-fiduciary, the bank would act more like a bailey. They take the possession of the customer's asset, they keep it safe, but legal title would remain with the customer. So then the customer would retain direct control over those keys. Keep getting familiar with these terms because they're going to start coming coming more familiar um, for you, but those keys associated with their virtual currency. Both ways give a customer a sense of safekeeping with the bank, which isn't that probably the most fundamental service that a bank offers. Um, and although this bill is limited to Virginia state chartered banks, I want you to keep in mind, all of you states out there, that this legislation may serve as model language for other state legislative efforts. So we'll see how it goes. Virginia's law goes into effect on July the 1st. Wonderful, Kate. Uh, Shelby and Katie, didn't you watch a webinar by the regulators reminding us about the information or security notification requirements for banks that's going into effect soon? And I know you had a really great takeaway and I wanted you to share it with our listeners today. Yes, this month, um, the Federal Reserve, FDIC, and OCC all came together and hosted an Ask the Regulators webinar on the new computer security incident rule that has a mandatory compliance date of May 1st. So probably you listeners, that date has passed. And they gave a great slide deck with a lot of excerpts directly from the rule. But what I really found most interesting was the Q&A section of the webinar that addressed multiple questions from institutions uh, throughout, but 
I think the, the main takeaway that I took was when in doubt, contact your regulator. If you are a little bit concerned about whether or not something falls or is actually defined as an incident, or if you are concerned, if you are contacting your regulator within a reasonable time frame, when in doubt, please contact your regulator. Um, they also provided some great contact information on how you can contact them if you experience a computer security incident. So I would imagine that that webinar will be available to the industry soon. Um, but you also, if you check out Incomply, our solution here, we are following that ruling as it progresses. Thank you, Katie. And a reminder that specific regulation and the notification requirement applies only to banks. So we're going to go ahead and move on to issues affecting credit unions. We're going to start with examinations and Katie's going to tell us what's going on on that front. Yes, this one's uh, more of a follow-up to a letter of, to credit unions NCUA issued last July when they began to implement phase one of their phased approach to returning to on-site operations at the agency. Based on new guidance from the CDC, the NCUA announced this month that as part of phase two, on-site operations did resume on April 11th. Now, if you're wondering about on-site exams resuming, the agency has stated that during phase two, they will continue to conduct examinations off-site when feasible and appropriate. NCUA also reminds credit unions that when scheduling your examinations, they will continue to work with you if you are still experiencing challenges as, as it relates to COVID and will work with credit union management to identify a suitable time to conduct the examination. So for now, the agency is back, on, back within their brick and mortar, but exams are still being conducted off-site. So stay tuned for any subsequent letters to credit unions from NCUA. Thank you, Katie. And it's exciting to see that we are kind of going back to some of the things we're used to, but still having that flexibility to do our work remotely. Shelby, I know we're going to go ahead and switch on over to mortgage companies, but we're also not done talking about cryptocurrency. Isn't that right? We are not. So maybe you're not interested in that 40-year mortgage that Katie talked about a little while ago, but how does a crypto mortgage sound? So we've got more cryptocurrency news this month. The crypto mortgage is becoming a thing. It's becoming more readily available as new startups start vying for more and more of home buyers' business. So Milo Credit has been the big one this year. They started a trend with the first crypto mortgage earlier this year. They're based out of America's crypto capital, Miami. And so the trend begins. Let's talk about what Milo's crypto mortgage looks like. It's a 30-year product. It lets you leverage your cryptocurrency holdings right now, just Bitcoin at this time, to purchase a home. You then repay the loan monthly, plus interest. You can pay it in dollars, believe it or not, Bitcoin or stablecoin. And during the course of the loan, Milo holds your crypto in a secure location. Again, that safekeeping idea. And once the balance is repaid in full, you get that Bitcoin back. It's released and returned to you. Now, this may all sound tempting. There are some benefits to crypto mortgages. They have lower interest rates. In fact, as of mid-April, Milo was advertising rates between 3.95 and 5.95%. 
In comparison, Freddie Mac was saying the average 30-year fixed mortgage uh, had a rate of 4.72%. Crypto mortgages have lower down payments. A lot of these lenders will offer up to 100% financing. These mortgages are based on crypto wealth, which may make a mortgage loan more accessible for someone who lacks credit history. And they have a more streamlined process. That closing process goes a little faster. It can be done maybe in about two to three weeks, no required credit checks, and there's a lot less documentation. And on the other hand, there are the risks. We talked about earlier how cryptocurrency, how, how it fluctuates in price. And so borrowers who have the ability to get a traditional mortgage should probably stick with that route at this point. But just so you know, there are a lot of lenders jumping into the ring here. You've got figure lending, you've got Ledin and LoanSnap, um, and they're all going to be looking to get your business. So I dare say this is not the last time you will hear about crypto mortgages in our podcast. And while I'm on topics that we've mentioned before, we've got some other state news this month. Three more states passing legislation that permits remote work for mortgage company employees, of course, under certain conditions, and, and these include Tennessee, Kansas, and Kentucky. We have all learned in the pandemic that we can work from home, but we don't want to do so without any rules. So each of these laws place additional procedural, record-keeping, and oversight responsibilities on the licensed mortgage company so that we know that they're, they're adequately supervising their remote employees. If you're in one of these states, check that out. Thank you, Shelby. And that does it for us. Thank you for joining us during this issue and very busy month of April. We hope to see you soon. If you have any questions or want more information on the topics we discussed today, don't forget to check out your NCOMPLY where we have the latest on regulatory changes. We have guidance, news, and additional information that is very helpful. We will see you next time during the month of May, which I am assuming is going to be very busy legislatively on the state side, the federal side, as well as on the guidance front. Thank you and take care. That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.